Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with philosopher and social innovator Jean Vanier. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you get your podcasts. So um, we've created a makeshift recording studio, as you can see. And this is a radio show, but because it's the 21st century, it's also a website. And we will do video. And website, it means that it will come out on well, we'll have on the website, people can hear the, our conversation, but they can also watch it. Um, so Trent is going to yes, yeah. be videotaping it and okay. uh, <coughs> taking pictures. <laughs> okay. And um, yeah, so I've uh, known about Lars for years. I, went, I have a Master's of Divinity, and uh, I think it was when I was, at, when I was studying theology that I started to read you and Henry Nouwen and... And then we did, in the early years of this show, we did what we called a radio pilgrimage to the Clinton community, the Clinton, Iowa community. And, uh, so you know a little bit. Oh, yeah. <coughs> we did. We kind of... It's very important. Mm. Yeah. And in fact, we, we've put that program on the air every year, I think. Four or five times. Yes. And the people, Clinton one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Your voice is in there also. We have some... So, some tape from when you got the, the Dignitas Humana Award at Saint jo- in college. You right? were there? I was there. I was yeah. there, yeah. Yeah, so Joanne did Horstman. I don't think we did meet. Um, you know, there were members of, uh, of large communities there, and I spent time with some of them, and Joanne Horstman became a friend yeah. when we were in Clinton. But I don't, I, wa- I watched you speak, but I don't think we met then. So. Um, Now, the big thing is not to leave my earphones here. <laughs> Will you help me? Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Will I hear you? Yes. Yeah. Um, how's that? Yeah, sorry. That's okay. Yeah, I, I love my headphones. I... <laughs> <laughs> now, would you like them louder? The volume louder? Um, I can't hear you like that, but when I hear you, All right. it's would right. You, would you like the volume? No, up, it's it's it's, fine. it's okay when okay. you speak. When you hear when All you right. were speaking, yeah, I'm, I, a little, I'm a little. <laughs> you better. Are you? Uh, okay? I'm fine. Yeah, hmm. yeah. I just need to check some things in here. Okay. Do you do you have any questions of me about um, my program or? Okay. This is on public radio. I just saw I just saw one program you did on depression. Oh, soul with and depression. Parker, yes. With Parker yes. Palmer yes. and two other people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's okay. all right. Okay. And that's, um, well, that's a special program. It's unusual. Um, there were three of you yes. together or four of you together. Well, there were three separate interviews. Yeah. Oh, there were three separate mm-hmm. interviews. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're on public radio, which is 
not really like the CBC or the BBC, but the closest equivalent. Mm -hmm. And uh, so people who are listening are all across the spectrum of our culture, religious in many ways, non-religious in many ways. And, uh, but, but I created this program to have a place where we could speak about religion seriously mm-hmm. and allow people of faith to speak mm-hmm. from their deepest places. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also it was, um, it felt risky in this culture to put something like this on public radio mm-hmm. um, because there was an idea that you can't invite people to speak from their deepest places without making other people feel mad mm-hmm. or excluded. And that's really just... Mm-hmm. That's just about how we've gone wrong with religious speech in this culture, not about what this aspect of life is about. So. Okay. All right. does, it have, does it have to be that close? But uh, I find it a bit... Um, okay. That's better. All right. So, Mitch, can we um, can we start? Yeah. All right. Um, I want to, you know, I'm so I'm interested when I when I read about your early life, your er, young adulthood, because um, you you did a number of things. You know, you were you were in, went into the navy, and um, then you went to live in the community. Lovive, right? And uh, a religious community, you came out, you got a doctorate in philosophy, you were a teacher. And um, when, I, when I read those stories and see this Jean Vanier sort of moving from here to there and back to there, I, I, I sense that you were, you were finding a lot in every place you were, but you were searching. And then, and then there's this moment where you meet, where you, where you end up back and, and you meet Raphael and Philippe and it seems like you find, you settle and you settle so deeply and you've been you've been moving from there for all the rest of your life. And I just wonder if, if you look, look back on that, is, is there something that you were searching for um, in all of those places in all of those endeavors in the Navy and in philosophy and, um, and in those early, that early religious community that you, that you really found then that you discovered? Um, I find it sort of difficult to interpret correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a memory and I have a memory one thing probably that affected me more than that we were people of the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, as in France with my family, when the war broke out, and then uh, we became refugees in the roads of Paris with the German army coming, having come through, and then escaping from um, Bordeaux on the British destroyer and then and then off to Canada, this is 1940. I still remember in the Polish ship in which we were hearing that our ship had been sunk by the German radio. <laughs> so the very fact, war brings something. Um, I'm not sure I was frightened, but it was exciting, it was adventure, it was... I don't quite know how I lived all that. And then came that that moment, and still I don't know why or how, a desire to enter into the British Navy. Hmm. Um, so it remains for me as a sort of mystery. What is, what is it? 
because I was happy at the school I was in in Montreal. But something very important happened, and I went to my father and I said I wanted to join the Navy. And uh, he said, well, why? And I don't, really don't know what I said. But I still remember when he said, I trust you. If that's what you want, you must do it. And since then, I've, I've believed that that trust which came from Dad uh, gave me birth. I was reborn. Because if he had said, no, you must wait, I would have said, okay, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been a, well, I think I would have been crushed, but it wouldn't have been a big deal. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, uh, but the fact that he said, I trust you, meant that I could trust my own intuitions. And one of the things I find today is many young people don't know about their intuitions or their desires, or even if they're allowed to have desires. Mm -hmm. So um, not only then did he confirm my desire and strengthen my, my trust even in myself, but I think it's given me a certain facility to trust other people. Right. Well, also, it strikes me, you trusted your intuition, but but you could also question it. Um, in point of fact, I'm not sure that I did question mm. it. Was, it was a, a desire. And, uh, but you moved, you moved away from that. I mean, you did. Yeah. You took I mean, a couple of different turns. Yeah, than well, that, that's mm -hmm. certain. I mean, I joined the Navy. Mm -hmm. I was eight years. It was a completely different culture. Mm -hmm. I was in a very sort of closed culture, which was my family, and then go to the British Navy, it was a completely other culture. But when I look back, I find the way I adapted was, was amazing that I should adapt to this. So I spent eight years in the Navy, and I loved it. I, my last ship was an aircraft carrier, Canadian HMCS, magnificent. Then at a time, I knew that I had to leave. And that desire to leave was a, certainly a spiritual desire, a desire to, to know Jesus. But I didn't know where it would be or how it would be. Or just, I knew that I had to leave. I knew that I had to, to move forward into a domain which was more spiritual. One has to remember also that having been in the Navy, I was filled with prejudices. Mm. It, it wasn't easy for me later on to go back to Germany. You know, right. because one is filled with prejudices. What is it prejudice? But it's just the whole reality of who is the enemy and who is the friend. Yeah, well, it's a weight of history. As it's well. a, it's, it's yeah. the weight of history. Yeah. Anyway, I knew that I had to leave, and but I just waited for the right moment. Uh, at that moment, I was in HMCS Magnificent. We were down in Cuba more just for maneuvers and said it was nothing to do with Fidel, it was before Fidel. Up to New York, that was very important because I, I went to see Friendship House. Oh, Friendship, Dorothy Day's. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no, Baroness de Hoyk. Oh, yes. Dorothy Day right. was the Catholic worker. Yes. Baroness de Hoyk had created the Friendship House and I was reading Thomas Merton, The Seven Story Mountain at that right. time. Mm -hmm. And he had been in this community. So, and that's, that touched me deeply to go into Harlem and to live with the men and women who were there. And I discovered something about community and to live community. And, and community is a place of bonding and celebration and happiness, but also with a, a goal. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, very quickly after having arrived from Cuba, New York, I handed my resignation, not knowing quite where to go, but I knew that I wanted a place where just I could be and be quiet and pray and gradually discover, let things come up within me of what was the next step. And there again, there was a very deep experience because I, that community near Paris had been founded by a French Dominican priest. And he was very deeply a man of God. I think I had a very open intelligence. You know, since the age of 13, I'd been in the world of the Navy. I hadn't mm -hmm. done philosophy. I hadn't done any particular reading. I mean, I was geared for the military. But here was somebody who opened up new visions, new vistas, new... Was your mother introduced you to him? Is that right? My mother had known him and had talked to me about him. And actually, I'd even met him when I'd been in France when I was in the Navy. But it was the type of community that really I needed. There was manual work, there was studies, there was prayer together. And people came, the, the first Germans uh, from Germany were there. That was 1955, five years only after the end of the war. Many people from uh, Syria and from Lebanon and uh, so on. So we, we were a group of young students, many of them doing doctorates in philosophy and things like that. Right. There was, um, I've read in a few places that there was a, an emphasis on a life of prayer, but also on the study of metaphysics. Is that right? Yes. Uh, Petama was... A mystic and a metaphysician. I mean, he was, uh, I remember once following his courses, and uh, he was so up in it, and he was saying, he was talking about something in metaphysics, and he said, you know, take a very concrete example, the angels, for example. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> laughed, and he couldn't understand, you know, why people were laughing, because it was for him a very concrete example. <laughs> so uh, he was a metaphysician, he was a thinker, he was a, uh, really a man of God. And what I sensed was not so much the metaphys metaphysician, um, but somebody in whose presence one felt the presence of God. Mm. And he was the one who encouraged me to do studies and encouraged me particularly to, to work on Aristotle. Right. So that was how it was that with the studies in Aristotle and eventually a doctorate because he felt not necessarily that Aristotle was the best, but that he, he, he gave a way of thinking and obliging to think and to put clarity into thought and the big thing with Aristotle is the primacy of experience over idea. Mm. A lot of people don't know that. They, the worst thing that can happen is for Aristotelians to become Aristotelians because then they start reading Aristotle, but they're no longer in linked with ah. reality, to touch reality, mm -hmm. to listen to people, to see the world evolving and so on. Right. I think um, you, quite recently in 2001, you published what I think is a, version of that dissertation that you wrote or an extension and you, I thought something was so interesting you said um, that Aristotle talked about that, that it's an ethics of desire uh, that, and that, it, that, is, that is resonant with who we are today because people want to have meaning in their lives which was which Aristotle identified and they want to be thrilled by it and you said an ethics of desire is good news for us 
at a time when we have become allergic to an ethics of law. Yes, as the, for the heart of everything with Aristotle, desire and pleasure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for Aristotle, pleasure is not you know, something which is just sort of fooling around. Pleasure is when you have an activity which you have performed well, be it philosophizing or struggling for justice, whatever you do and you do well, it's filled with pleasure. Mm. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's joyful. In, in point of fact, we, in the language, in English, you would say pleasure and joyfulness. Joyfulness being maybe more interior than, than pleasure. But for Aristotle, there's only one word, and it's uh, the fulfillment of a desire in an activity you're doing well. And what I think is so edifying about talking about that this week, I think often people might say, look at the life you've led and the work you do and contrast that with what they might call our pleasure-seeking, entertainment-oriented society. But what I hear when you talk about Aristotle is, um, you know, you're not condemning that basic impulse that we have to to, that we to seek pleasure to you know um, you're just saying that we can take that to a much deeper and more profound level. Yeah, it's just finding where what activity will give you the greatest and the deepest pleasure. I mean, for some people, it might be drinking whiskey and mm-hmm. rock and so on. But for me, it was to find a meaning through philosophy, through my relationship with Jesus, through justice, through mm-hmm. through a struggle. I mean. And it's true that I sense deeply that I've always been really a happy person. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean to say I haven't had difficulties. That doesn't mean to say I didn't go through difficult conflicts or stuff like that. But fundamentally, I've had a pleasurable life, a mm-hmm. joyful life. And Talk to me, though, about you know, how you can you connect a word like pleasure and this longing with the place where I really sense you, you suddenly, you, you found your calling, you, you, you understood what, what, what was meaningful for you. Mm-hmm. And it was in, in fact, in a, um, when you went back to France and you encountered men in an asylum and somehow you were seized by that and that has, that has taken, that's, that's kind of mapped out the direction of your life. Yes, I come back to the reality of pleasure and to the reality of what is my deepest desire mm-hmm. and what is your deepest desire. And, what, and somewhere the deepest desire for us all is to be appreciated, to be loved, and to be seen as somebody of value, but not just seen, and Aristotle makes the difference between being admired and being loved. Mm-hmm. When you admire people, you put them on pedestals. When you love people, you want to be together. It's about bonding. So really the first meeting I had with people with disabilities, I was teaching philosophy then at St. Michael's College in Toronto. And what touched me was their cry for relationship. Um, Some of them had been in the psychiatric hospital, others, all of them had lived pain and the pain of rejection. And what touched me was, do you love me? Can I be your friend? I mean, it was a, an immense cry for relationship. This is very different to the cry of my, stud, my stud, students in philosophy. 
My students in philosophy, I think, liked my head, the little that's in it. But they wanted to use my head to get on with their studies, pass their exams mm -hmm. and get into society and so on. So I saw here not men who were wanting power and success. I'm talking now about people with disabilities, but it's a cry for, for love. And this touched something very deeply within me because it's a discovery that the cry of God is also a cry of, do you love me? It's the same, same cry. One of the words of, of Jesus to, the, to Peter, mm -hmm. and you find this at the end of the, the Gospel of St. John, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. Do right? you love me? Mm -hmm. So there's the cry of God saying, do you love me? And the cry of people who have been wounded, put aside, who have lost trust in themselves, they've been considered as mad and all the rest. And their cry is, do you love me? And it's these two cries that come together. Mm -hmm. So I was deeply moved what I saw in the little institution and then started visiting bigger institutions, psychiatric hospitals, and discovered a world of immense pain mm -hmm. for people with disabilities who are just herded together should I say like cattle, but a, a little bit. I mean, it, it, there was no sense at that period that people with disabilities were people and had value and have something to give. I mean, they were seen as misfits or people who were the misfits of nature, if I may use mm -hmm. that e expression. I think also you point out in a few places in your writing that in this culture, and we, we tend to focus on the pain of parents with children with disabilities, which is very real. But what you were experiencing, what I, and you know, you've even used the term, and we don't know how to talk about disability, right? So mm -hmm. mental disability, mm -hmm. mentally yeah. challenged, yeah. you know, yeah. mental yeah. retardation. Yeah. A lot yeah. of the yeah. people in the large homes I visited yeah. had mm -hmm. Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. You also talk about intellectual disability, mm -hmm. and I think that struck a chord in you because your mind, yeah, the life of the yeah, mind was important yeah. to you and pleasurable to you. Yeah. Um, um, I'm losing my train of thought. Um, You're talking about parents. Yeah. Right. And I think that somehow maybe there's a perception that people who are mentally limited or challenged, not normal, perhaps don't experience Pain, yeah, right? I think it's that, kind of a head trip, uh, yeah, the way we yeah, think about yeah, pain in that yeah, sense. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I think what I discovered very quickly was if somebody feels that they're not wanted in their family or that they are a shame for their parents, mm -hmm. and it is a shame for the parents. Parents don't understand this, and parents are lost. And when their son or daughter has a severe disability, it's very, very painful. Yes. And so, but what people don't realize is that a child who feels that they're not wanted as they are, that they are a disappointment, and in point of fact, cause of the tears of their parents, because mm. they're going from doctor to doctor, because the parents are hoping for the miracle um, cure, that they don't realize that the child has a wounded heart. You see, there's something that we're coming to terms with in our culture, is the whole relation of child and, and mother. Mm -hmm. I mean, amazingly, before 1930, people didn't even see this as something important. It's only in 1930 with people like Bowlby, psychiatrists in, uh, in the United Kingdom, who began to see that children who were happy would get over diseases quickly than children who had abandonment and therefore were in a type of depression 
You see, children with disabilities who feel they've not been wanted, who feel that they're not loved and therefore they're not lovable. There is a form of depression, very specific, which is the depression of the child, the unwanted child, the, the child that nobody has really wanted, as, as he or she is. Mm -hmm. And so this is what struck me, was the depression behind Philippe and Raphael, who were the first ones that I welcomed. Mm -hmm. And it can take time, and it there touches the fundamental vision of Lash, that when you have a, a child or a son or a daughter, or when you are living with somebody with disabilities who are hidden behind this wall of depression, they need time to come out of the depression. And the way you can, they can come out of that depression is the way we look at them, the way we touch them, the way we speak to them. And the word, the final word around all that is tenderness. Mm. You see, tenderness is an attitude towards people, towards their body, towards their being, where they will never be hurt. Tenderness is never to hurt a wounded person. You can see this, the tenderness of a mother with her baby, mm -hmm. holding the baby. She touches the baby tenderly, and that tenderness gives on one side security, and on the other side reveals Tenderness reveals, it reveals, what does it say? It reveals that you're precious. If I mm. touch you tenderly, unfortunately, the word tenderness has turned a little bit into a, a sort of sexual world. And it's not quite the fundamental element is, is gentleness and blessed are the gentle. That is to say, do not shock or do not hurt or do not wound people who are already too wounded. Mm -hmm. So that was a discovery that, and I think is what is at the heart of Lash and at the heart of any form of pedagogy where you're living with people who are broken down and out, could be people in the slums, it, it could be people like uh, who are in the palliative care, who are dying, and all those who are in a state of weakness. The important thing is to reveal to them that they are precious because the danger for them is to hide behind a sort of depression. I'm no good, and anyway, all is finished, and nobody can love me. Whereas on the contrary, we have to reveal to them, yeah, you are precious. And perhaps that leads to a kind of dulled affect, which leads people wrongly to conclude that the pain is not there, as you're saying that. Yes, though I think the, there's a refusal to listen. Mm -hmm. And I think that... There's been a whole sort of, I saw with the first two people I welcomed, their, their parents had died and so they were, I use the word, shoved into an asylum mm -hmm. without asking their advice. Nobody sat down mm -hmm. with them and said, well, what can we do for you? What, right. How can we? So they were seen as non-entities, not subjects, not persons, mm -hmm. but just as a nuisance. And you can find the same attitude towards all weak people. Mm -hmm. They can be seen as, as a nuisance because they can be angry, they can be upset. They could, because when people have not been respected, then the anger can come up or depression or uh, violence and all these attitudes. They, they lose something of their humanity if they're not respected. But if they are respected, if they are treated with, with dignity, then they become human. I wonder what you've come to understand in addition to this sense you have of what goes on inside the hearts and minds of people with disabilities why 
is it so hard um, for people without disabilities, and, and not just not just in the context of disabilities, you know, you've posed this question, you know, the whole, you've said the whole question is how do we stand before pain? Yeah. All kinds of pain and weakness mm-hmm. are difficult mm-hmm. for, um, for us as human mm-hmm. beings. I mean, of course, we have our own weakness and pain, but we, we cope with that. But what is different? What is other? Mm-hmm. Why, why is that so excruciating? Why do we do such a bad job with it? I think there's so many elements. First of all, we... We don't quite know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. We don't know what to do with our own pain, so what to do with the pain of others. We don't know what to do with our own weakness, except hide it or pretend it doesn't exist. So how can we welcome fully the weakness of another if we haven't welcomed our own weakness? Mm-hmm. The very strong words of Martin Luther King who remains one of the the great men of the last century. And we forget that it was only sort of 40 or 50 years ago that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And his question was always, how is it that one group, the white group, can despise another group, which is the black group? And Mm -hmm. will it always be like this? Will we always be having an elite condemning or pushing down others that they consider non, not worthy. And he says something which is quite, what I find extremely beautiful and strong, is that we will continue to despise people until we have recognized, loved, and accepted, or recognized, accepted, and loved what is despicable in ourselves. Hmm. So that then we go down, well, what is it that is despicable in ourselves? And there are some elements despicable in ourselves which we don't want to look at, but which are part of our nature is that we are mortal. And that I can go down, leave this house and, uh, and fall down and break my neck. Uh, or I can have a sickness and a heart disease. And, you know, we are very fragile in front of the future accidents and sicknesses is the reality. We are born in extreme weakness mm-hmm. and our life will end in extreme weakness. So this, people don't want to hold on to that. They want to prove something. They want security. They want to have big bank accounts and, and all that sort of stuff. So the despair, but then also oh, lots of fears within us. Yes. We are a frightened people. I, w- I wanted to ask you about that because I feel that fear as a force in our public life has grown in recent years. As I, I wondered, and I'm, I'm, have you observed that? Uh, what does that do to us? What does fear do to us? I, I, I wouldn't say that it's grown. I think it's part of humanity. And uh, when you just think of what happened during from 1939 to 1945 and the fears that were there, the fear of the other, I think we become more conscious that fear exists. And of course, the big question is, why are we so frightened of people with disabilities? Mm-hmm. Like a, a woman who said to me just recently, asked me where I what I was doing, and I said that I had the privilege of living with people with disabilities, and she said, oh, but I could never work with people. And 
I said, why not? And she said, well, I'm frightened of them. And I said, have you ever met one? They said, no. no. So there's a very deep prejudice, which I think goes back, like, for parents. Maybe the greatest fear of parents when parents become pregnant um, or a mother becomes pregnant is, will my child have a handicap? And then there is something quite deep, uh, a bad fruit, a bad tree, because one of the words that comes up very quickly when people become aware that their child has a severe handicap, whose fault is it? Right. Whose fault is it? Have I been punished by God? I mean, you find this even in the Gospel of John, where the disciples meet a man born blind, and their first question is, is it he who has sinned or the parents? Mm -hmm. Immediately, whose fault? And then you get division between father and the, the father and the mother and all that. So there's a fear that if what comes out of my being, my womb, uh, is not fully human, am I fully human? So it touches very, and I, I believe we're in front of a mystery of the human reality because there is such a reality as people with disabilities and, and people who are very deeply disfigured in their face, in their body, and so on. And it's the fault of nobody. It's a reality that is there, and maybe we can work things out and discover what gene it is and so on. But the reality is that the history of humanity is a history of people being born extremely fragile because sickness and death is part of our, mm -hmm. of, our, of our reality. And as you've also pointed out many times, we all have, what did you say, you can call them our, our weaknesses, our limitations, our disfigurements. Mm -hmm. um, they don't all show on our bodily surface, right? But somehow that we recoil when, yeah. when it shows. Yeah. We, we are frightened. You see, there's such a need to be appreciated, such a need to be loved with that sense somewhere that if they see what is broken in me, they'll no longer love me. So somewhere there has to be a, a, a complete change that we love people not because they're beautiful or clever, or they, but because they're a person. I'll tell you a story of a, a woman whom I met not too long ago. She came to see me and she said, you know, I'm, I have a deep mental sickness, but I'm very happy. And I said, well, can you tell me a bit more? Because I haven't heard people like that. And she said, yes, I have a mental sickness. I'm bipolar and, uh, and it's been difficult and I hated my, my sickness. And sometimes I wouldn't take medication. And so I'd go. But then I met a psychiatrist who helped me to discover that there is my person much deeper than my sickness. And it's okay to be sick to realize that I have this sickness. Therefore, I have to be careful about the amount of sleep I take, the, the type of friends, what I eat, how I do my holidays, uh, the people I meet, uh, and so on. So I have to, in some way, gérer my, my, weak, my weakness, mm. my sickness. But deeper than that, there's my person. Mm. And so the whole question about people with disability is to help People discover that they're persons. You are beautiful. You, mean, you might have a face that's disfigured, but you're a very beautiful person and you have value. Which means that at places like our communities, the important thing in our communities where we eat together around the same table is just to say, I'm happy to live with you. Hmm. Because they've been with people who have been telling them 
that they're not happy to live with them, or they're being told they have to change. Whereas the reality is, we just have to say, you know, I'm happy to be with you. And if people realize that they are loved as they are, then they want to begin to change. Hmm. You told a story when I heard you speak at St. John's University years ago about sitting in your office at, at large with a man who'd come to see you and he was feeling so sorry for very happy members of your community. Do you remember that oh, story? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Could you tell that? Oh, yes, yes, I was sitting in bed with a man who was a bit glum, like a lot of people, a bit glum, everything. And anyway, there was a knock on the door, and before I could say come in, Jean-Claude walked in. And Jean-Claude, if you like, technically would be Down syndrome. And uh, Jean-Claude shook my hand and laughed and shook the hand of the other fellow and, and laughed and uh, went out laughing. And uh, the man that had been in my office looked at me and said, isn't it sad, children like that? <laughs> and I mean, he, what was sad was that he was totally blind. He didn't see that Jean-Claude was happy. And this is the reality of, is that we have preconceived ideas. This is prejudice, a prejudgment. And uh, if somebody has some deformity or something, they are seen as poor little people with no value. Whereas in reality, maybe they're very happy people. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about a couple of, uh, paradox is an important word here. There's, a, there's, there's paradox or seeming paradox paradox in many of the the realities and the virtues at the heart of Larsh, I think, in terms of in the way in terms of the way our culture defines reality. So one of them I think is, you know, you've written that from the point of view of faith, those who are marginalized and considered failures can restore balance to our world. Talk to me about that. Yes, I mean here we are in a in a paradox. You see <laughs> the balance of our world frequently is seen as a question of power. That uh, if I have more power and more knowledge, more capacity, then I can do more. But there's this tension between the doing and the being. And when we have power, we can very quickly um, push people down. I'm the one that knows, and you don't know, and I am the one, and I'm strong, and I'm powerful, I have the knowledge, and this is the history of humanity. Yes. How humanity, you know, today we cannot, we cannot imagine the horror, for instance, of slavery, and the way men and women, slaves, were, were hurt and beaten down. When you look at the pyramids, it's, slavery is not just Western Africa mm-hmm. coming to Haiti, Caribbean. It, I mean, the, 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 the whole history of, of the, the pyramids, and it was 400,000 slaves. Who, so between the, the person who has power and the person who has a capacity to relate, which is very different to say to the slave, you must do this, or to say to the slave, tell me, where is your pain and can I help you? And can I help you to rise up and to be, to be free and to, to be yourself? So there's a capacity for action, and that is all of what I'd call the whole educational system, is that we must educate people to become capable and to take their place 
in society. Mm-hmm. That has value, obviously, but it's not quite the same thing as to educate people to relate, to listen, to help people to become themselves. You see, our society is based on what I would call the the pyramid vision. There's a top and a huge base. And at the top, there are those who are privileged, power, wealth. And at the bottom, there's a whole mass of people, uh, old people maybe with Alzheimer's, people with disabilities, people who are mentally sick, people who can't make it, people who are in prison, you know, the the, the mm. horrible reality of, of prisons. And, and so we're in a world where people must go up to the top of the, the pyramid. But then what we're discovering is that if you take time and time with those at the bottom of the pyramid, they're people who relate to what they want is recognition and love, not power. So the equilibrium that people with disabilities can bring is precisely this equilibrium of the heart, hmm. that uh, relationship, the desire to relate. You see something very particularly children. You see, maybe a, a, a father is a very strong man and businessman. And when he comes home, if he gets down on his hands and knees and plays with the children, it's the child that is teaching the father something about tenderness, mm. about love, about the father looking at the needs of the child, the face of the child, the hands of the child, relating to the child. And so we can either create a world where children can teach us what it means. And the children, the incredible thing about children is they're unified in their, in their body. And in, whereas we, we can be very disunified. We can say one thing and feel another. Right. And, uh, there's a lot of brokenness in we human beings. So as a child can teach us about unity and about fidelity and about love. So it is people with disabilities. There's the same sort of beauty and purity in some of these people that is extraordinary and say our world is not just a world of competition. It's a world where we can get together. And let's not try to make a world which is based on the body, on the on the pyramid. Let's try to make a world which is based on the body, where mm. everybody is important. The weakest and the strongest, everybody have their place. That um, seems that you have developed quite an important theology of the body through your work with Lars. I mean, I think maybe... You're just you're edging towards it there, but it's 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 bigger than that also. Yes, I, I, you see, Lash is not based first on the word. You find a lot of communities which are based on the word. That's to say, we speak of an ideal together, and we are committed to an ideal or to a vision and so on. But Lash is based on 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 body, and on suffering bodies. For people to come to one of our communities, they need to have a if I use that expression, uh, it's because they have a broken body somewhere. Because somewhere they have been rejected because they're not quite what their parents would have been, wanted them to be. They don't have the beauty, they don't have the facility, they don't have the mobility, they don't have all these, these elements. And so they are seen as useless. And so we welcome those who apparently are useless. And it's the suffering body which brings us together. 
and it's our attention to the body. You see, when somebody comes to our community and is quite severely handicapped, what is important is to see that the body is well. Bathing, giving baths, uh, um, helping people dress, to eat. It's not, first of all, it's to communicate to them through the body that they are precious. So in, in point of fact, it's the whole discovery of the importance of body. Unfortunately, that importance of body has been pushed to an extreme that we need beautiful bodies. But what we're trying to say is that your body is important and you are your body. And then as the body can become, become comfortable, then the spirit can rise up. Hmm. There's a recognition, there's a contact, there's a relationship. We see this with some of our people, like Francoise. <clears throat> Francoise well, came to our community in 1978, very severe handicap. She couldn't speak. She could walk a bit. She couldn't dress herself. She was incontinent. And she couldn't eat by herself. And today she is nearly 30 years older, mm -hmm. 74 or mm. whatever it is, 76. She's become blind. And a beautiful person. There was somebody who came to our community not too long ago who was, saw Francoise, and the reaction was, well, what is the point of keeping Francoise alive? And the leader of the little house said, but madam, I love her. <laughs> I mean, it's as if you come into a home and grandma is in the home and she has Alzheimer's and you say, well, what is it? But she's my grandmother. <laughs> I mean, it, it, so it's, it's based on the body and then from the body, relationship grows. Mm. We begin to see that we are bonded together. And then for some, the, the word becomes important, but everything begins, as I say, with the body. Mm. You know that when I went to spend a few days in a large community a few years ago, um, I've never been hugged so much in my life. Mm. It was very physical, joyfully physical, mm. and without, you know, some of the inhibitions. You know, on the one hand, yes, our culture says bodies have to be beautiful and faces have mm. to be beautiful, mm. but we also sexualize everything. Yeah. So the yeah. touch becomes mm. complicated, and touch mm. was so uncomplicated, mm. and it was also so appropriate. Mm. Uh, that, that has been something very important for me because in the Navy and in the time after the Navy, I think I was somebody a little bit frightened of relationships, particularly with women. Um, I was a man who was, knew how to be efficient and quick and uh, I knew how to teach, I knew how to give commands in the Navy and so on. And then in, uh, live, starting to live in L'Arche with Raphael and Philippe, it was precisely the realization what they were crying out for was touch, but also maybe that's what I was crying out for. Mm. And what, we would, what I would call safe touch. Yes. That's to say a touch which secu gives security and reveals. The security, it's what I was talking about, tenderness, the security of the little child in the arms of the mother, but it's also revelation. You are special. And the way one can put one's arm around the shoulder of some, it's not to possess them, it's no. not to hold on to them, it's to reveal. Mm -hmm. And I see this now, you know, it's, it's super getting older because now I'm 79. And uh, 
very quickly, you know, I was in, responsible for one of the homes after I left the directorship. And now these people who are still in the home, uh, they'll be saying to me, you're looking tired. And, and now after 70, they said, you don't have to do the washing up anymore. <laughs> so, so the very fact that I'm getting older and weaker have brought them closer to me and come up to me and hug me like somebody like Janine, who was a very violent woman who had hemiplegia and epilepsy. And, so, and gradually she became very peaceful. But sometimes I'd go and sit down beside her and she'd put her hand on my head and she'd say, <laughs> poor old man. <laughs> There's a sort of tenderness. In her. So it's the realization of how to create a culture which is no longer a culture just of competition, but a culture of welcoming, where tenderness, where touch is important. And it's not either sexualized nor aggressive. It has become human. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is what people with disabilities are teaching us. It's, it's something about what it means to be human mm -hmm. and to relate and, and to celebrate life together. I want to ask you about another paradox in your experience that you clearly for you community is a place of healing community is a place of joy but you also stress that communities are places of pain yes you see I was just saying that I was frightened of relationship maybe during my adolescence and my young adulthood and that finally coming to 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 be in Lush and to live with people with disabilities, to give baths and so on. I was brought into the world of relationship. But it means if I was frightened of relationship at one time, and then relationship became, it means something has happened. And relationship is never easy. Mm -hmm. Because some people you like, some people maybe you like too much. Some people you dislike, they get on your nerves and they make you climb walls. <laughs> and so we begin to see that we are a people who have created barriers around our hearts. And if we, I talked about Martin Luther King and Despicable, and it's, it's, we're frightened of people because they touch something very deep within us. We want to prove that we are right and that we are the best and this terrible reality of elitism because when we begin to meet each other, well, we can begin to touch our anguish, our difficulties. Could be the difficulties in sexuality. It could be other forms and types of difficulty, our need to possess, our need to control, our need to... So relationship to become human means to enter into a communion of hearts where I accept you just as you are and you accept me just as I am. I have no desire to have power over you. I don't want to create mutual dependency. It's something else that as we begin to love each other, something happens. You give me life and I give you life. And in a way, it's something that it's difficult to describe because we are so used to either being above people or below people, aggressive or holding on, that, that the whole reality of communion of hearts is something difficult for people to, mm -hmm. to touch. And I think it's, we'd say in French, ineffable. It's something you can. Martin Luther, 
sorry, um, Martin Buber, uh, very deep in that question of the I and the thou, a meeting. You see, people can be generous. Generosity is a beautiful thing. And you find that when there was that terrible tidal waves in Southeast Asia, people will be generous, they'll send money. And those who have more want to give to those who have less. I mean, there's something very beautiful in the, the human hearts in generosity. But generosity can become power. Mm -hmm. I have, I'm superior, so I can give. So generosity must normally, if it is possible, flow into a meeting where I meet you. And you listen to me, and I listen to you, and I discover how precious you are, and mm -hmm. you discover how precious I am. And there's pain that is created between human beings when, when a relationship is principally takes place on the level of power and that kind of struggle. And we all know that kind of pain in community. And what is what is the pain when people are actually meeting each other? You know, what what are the different struggles that we have in being human? Because you don't try to idealize a community at large and say, you know, this is, this is a perfect place. You know, quite the opposite. It's a long, dis in point of fact, it's a long journey of becoming who I am and finding a unity in myself and not trying to possess or control other people. And it's a long journey because we're in a society of competition mm -hmm. where we often believe that our identity is through power or through competence. And so it becomes something else to create an identity which is meeting. And meeting is the way we look at people. And I'd go, it's not just a meeting, but also it's about honoring what is weakest in the other. One, I think that a, a true community, we honor the weakest. But that means that we're also honoring what is weakest in ourselves. And if we come back to what is despicable, it's about our poverty, to even to honor our own poverty, mm -hmm. to admit to our poverty. And you see, Weakness can be despised, or weakness can become the cement of our body, of our bonding. Hmm. You know, it's because I'm weak, I, I can say, I need you. I need your help. I need your love. I need your appreciation. I, I need your help, whatever it is. So weakness can be what bonds humanity together, or it can become what makes people climb the power of the ladder of power and to crush others. So we're in a world either we're tending to crush and to go up the ladder, or we're beginning to discover that we can be weak together. And weakness is not just, it's, it's the recognition of who I am. And weakness is not gloating in weakness. I have gifts, but I also have weakness. I have trust, but I also have anguish. And to be conscious of the anguish and conscious of the pain, and to admit it. I mean, I'm somebody also who has, who has, I'd say, a lot of violence in me. I mean, that's part of my reality. And I've lived situations which, which were violent situations. And I see how this violence is in everybody. I remember accompanying parents, a mum who would come to speak to me and telling me about their children who were saying no, and how mum can become violent. Mm -hmm. 
and they hide that fun. So we are a people who are fearful, and that fear can become aggressivity, it can become depression. But let's talk about it. Let's admit it. We're not perfect. Although we are fragile, and I personally, I need the love of the people in my community. I need Jesus. I need the, a power from above, which Zlot has talked about in AA, AA in that fun, beautiful place of healing of people who are caught up in alcohol. Mm -hmm. But they have to admit that they need an, powers, a higher yes, power. Yes. And I think we all need that higher power. But a lot of us, maybe we don't dare say we need it because we don't dare say, well, I'm fragile and I have my own addictions and mm -hmm. I need help. You know, this question that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? I wonder how you answer that question or respond to that question here at 79. I would have said that, you know, possibly different ways in different... But I would say two elements. That you are the most vulnerable of people. And my experience today is much more the discovery how vulnerable God is. You see, God is so respectful of our freedom. And if, as the epistle of John says, that God is love, anyone who has loved in their life knows they become vulnerable. Where are you and the other person? And do you love me back? So if God is love, it means that God is terribly vulnerable. And God doesn't want to enter into a relationship where he's obliging or she is obliging us to do something. There's a beautiful text in the Apocalypse, the book of Revelations. I stand at the door and I knock. If somebody hears me and opens the door, then I will enter and I will dine with that person, that person close to me and I close to that person. What touches me there is God knocking at the door, not kicking the door down, <laughs> but waiting. Do you, will you open? Do you hear me? Because we're in a world where there's so much going on in our heads and our hearts and anxiety and projects that we don't hear God knocking at the door of our hearts. So I'd say that what touches me the deepest, maybe because I'm becoming myself more vulnerable, is the discovery of the vulnerability of, of God, who doesn't oblige. The other element, which is probably again linked to that, is that the only thing that's what I see important for myself is just to become a friend of Jesus hmm. and nothing else. And to become a friend of Jesus is to listen to him and to be, you know, with Jesus is something very touching. He says, ask whatever you want and I'll do it for you. And uh, he at the same time, you know, is saying, you know, what do you want? And we are saying to Jesus, what do you want? I mean, there's a, there's a sort of, and the whole, I think, of the mystery of Christianity is just living with Jesus, the way Jesus lived in Nazareth with, his, with Mary, his mother, and with Joseph, something. A relationship, 
John the Baptist was strong, he was powerful, <laughs> he was prophetic. Jesus was quiet and he ate with people who were caught up in prostitution, with tax collectors, with lepers and all that. I mean, there's something so simple about Jesus that he is disarming. Mm. We don't quite know what to do with it. Because frequently we would want a powerful Jesus who will put everything straight, who will cure everybody, who will do everything that we tell him to do. And it's not like that. Mm-hmm. Like we would say to sometimes when we bless the table and give food to the hungry, you know, bless our food and give food to the poor. And then Jesus looks at us and says, well, what about you giving food to the poor? You know, right. so everything <laughs> is to, to grow in a... In a, in a friendship of, of love. That's what it's all about. You want to change your tape? Okay. Can I take some water? Yes, take some water. <laughs> He's changing the tape. You okay? Yeah. I just want to make the most of this time we have. <laughs> and I can't keep you going much longer. How much longer have we got? Well, I think about a half an hour. Is that all right? Sure. Okay. It's my voice is getting oh, a bit... Oh, you sound good. good. All right. Um, so, Trent, you tell me. Can we... Okay. <clears throat> Technology. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to say anything until we're... Okay, all right. And of course, um, one implication of, of, this, of God, the vulnerable God, of honoring human freedom, is, is precisely this, this dark side that, you know, that we've been talking about, that human beings cause each other pain, dominate, and destroy... And so, you know, so then I'm kind of coming back at you with the, the theodicy question, the, the question of um, still if God is God, you know, is, is that enough to honor our freedom? How can God, how can Jesus allow? It's a good question. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things we don't know. And I mean, I just have to honor what I don't know. And... Uh, I can't, there's so many things I cannot explain. Because explanation is something about headiness. We yes. want to have it in the head. Mm-hmm. But the whole question is not to understand, but it's to be attracted to the place of pain uh, in order to give support to those who are suffering. So if we spent... Maybe I'm making something, but if we try to know too much, it might cut us away from being present. Mm. And I believe that the whole mystery of pain, like the mystery of people being crucified today, and sometimes being crucified by very good people, but who don't realize it, the whole question is how to be present there. 
and we cannot understand. I mean, there are so many things I cannot understand. But one thing I know is that in the degree according to where I'm at and how I am, it is vital that I be present to situations. There's a very moving thing with St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis said he couldn't stand lepers. And one can understand the disfigured leper hmm. with no nose or no ear or parts of gaping, you know, and in the Middle Ages there was something like in Europe, 20,000 leprosiums, you know, and filled with these people that, you know, smelt bad. And he said, I, I hated it. I, I couldn't stand it. And then he said that one, one day the Lord brought me to the lepers. And when I left, there was a new gentleness in my body and in my spirit. It was like, what struck me when he said, a new gentleness in my body and in my spirit. And it says, from there, I really left to serve the Lord. So Francis, the conversion, when I say the conversion, I, I'm talking about a change of attitude, because conversion is a change of attitude. It's not just a question of changing religion, all that sort of stuff. It's a, an inner change. And from the sort of fear and despisal of what appeared the most dirty, which in his period was the, the smell of the leper, and that he discovered that there was a presence of God in the leper. Mm. And in that person, not in that which smelt bad, in that person who was disfigured and smelt bad, there was a presence of God. So how can we, you know, that nothing can prove that. I can't prove that. Right, right. I mean, we can say these things. Mm -hmm. But what happened is that if we listen to Francis, he said that when he went and saw these people and stayed with them, he was changed. He discovered a completely new vision of the world, which was not to become, as he did want to, become a chevalier, a knight, and strong, and, and have fun with the other people, and sell cloth like his father sold. And so he, he discovered the world, something new. The world was upside down. Or, and that he discovered that in those that are the most rejected, there's a presence of God. So we can then begin to understand the whole mystery of rejection of God, because we don't want a God mm, mm. Uh, who's hidden in the dirt mm. or in, hidden in dirty people or mm. in smelly people or mm. disfigured people or in those 40 million people who are in the uh, refugee camps throughout the world and so on. You are... Deeply Catholic, I believe, and um, you were raised in the Roman Catholic tradition and are steeped in Catholic theology, and um, and the large communities are Christian at their core, and you know, based on this essence of your understanding of God and Jesus that you've been describing. And and one interesting thing that's happened, I think, in the course of this great experiment of, of large is that. Um, you know, the communities in India also have Hindu participants. And I was reading something you wrote recently that your community in France now has some Muslim members of the community. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, um, 
how if that surprises you or you know how you've experienced that to happen and uh and how how that participation of people from other faiths mm, adds to your to the to the knowledge to mm. to your sense of of what this means mm. or your theology or well, anthropology it's, it's important and i'm glad you began by saying catholic see catholic means universal yes right and, uh, Catholic with a small C. And, yeah, mm-hmm. the C, the Catholicism is an openness. You see, the heart of God is open. And the heart of God is there hidden in the leper. and so. On. But what you're saying is it's right that there was a tendency when I was younger, when I left the Navy, of a Catholicism where there was a sort of wall around it of the right and the wrong and the better and the best and all that sort of stuff. And so there's been the gradual, and it's really very interesting, the, the history of Lash. History of Lash is the relationship between a vision or a principle and experience. Hmm. What has experience uh, taught us? That, for instance, Nadja is a Muslim Moroccan lady and in the community next door, and I see her quite regularly. And I love listening to her. And I love hearing what she's saying of how she's becoming more unified, how she's discovering the heart and relationship, how she's discovering the depth of the Koran and her. She is becoming more human, more, more loving, more open. And this is the experience of listening to people. Raki is the head of our community in Calcutta. She's Hindu. I could sit at the feet of that woman and listen to her. She is amazing. Like the last (laughs) time I saw was about a year ago, and she was telling me that in Calcutta they were having difficulty. We're in a tough area of Calcutta, Tangra, which is a difficult area. And she was saying that many of our people with disabilities were being laughed at and people were throwing stones at them. And she said something was going wrong. We were being rejected by the... So we decided, she said, in the community to do a play, a theater, and that we would take one of Tagore's stories. (laughs) And the Tagore story was the story between somebody who was a very liberal on the religious and a very another man who was very conservative, and how they were in conflict, and how gradual reconciliation came. She said, "We did this, and there were three hundred people from the local area, and they've changed." <laughs> so it's it's what I've discovered as I've listened to Raki, or I've listened to Nadia, or when I went to Amman to work with young Muslims working in the in delinquency, the world of delinquency. I've discovered that, you know, we're all on the same search. We're all working in the same way, trying to to make of our world a place that's more human and more loving. So I can say that the relation between the principle and the experience Mm -hmm. has been a sort of movement in Lash over 40 years. And, you know, you could... I could have difficulty with some of the changes or difficulty with discovering that experience is important. Sometimes you want to clutch on to principles and and yet experience is saying go further, go further. So mm. I've had the, maybe that's also my training in the Navy, joining the Navy and the, to be open to experience, to listening to people 
and to see where the road to peace may lie. And it can only lie if we start listening to each other. Mm. I want to ask you a question that um, I'm kind of collecting different thoughts on this. Um, it, it's not something I've seen you write about. Mm. A lot of people in our time want to make a distinction between religion and spirituality. Um, and I'm just curious about how, from your life at large and these experiences and your theology, um, how do you think about those, you know, religion, spirituality, how they might be distinct and how also they are interconnected? Yes, I think this is one of the elements. You like St. Francis. Take St. Francis in the Middle Ages. He had a spirit of poverty. And in some ways, one can sense that the institution wounded that spirit. But yet, if the institution wasn't there, we wouldn't be speaking about Francis today. Right. So it's very important to... To it's a back and forth. To go back and yes. forth. There needs to be structures. You see, religion, every religion demands sacrament. What I mean by that, there's a period of initiation, there's a period of confirmation, and hopefully there is an element of some union with the Godhead. And every religion will always be some element prophetic and mystical. So... Uh, we need that. But religion is also something which is there to make us discover spirituality. And when I say spirituality, I'm using the word spirit, the Holy Spirit. But to pretend that I am cut off from the rest of humanity, that's wrong. I'm not. I'm part of humanity. I'm part of these people in the slum areas who want to go to church and to pray in front of a statue. I'm part of that humanity, maybe of the Hindus who are going to the temple. I mean, there is this element in religion, which is sacrament, heading towards the prophetic and the mystical, which must be there. But at the same time, what is important is because always with the religious will be elements of law. Mm -hmm. And we're all called to welcome law but also to transcend it, what I mean by transcend it. What is important is not the obedience of law, it is discovering who I am, discovering who God is and the vulnerability of God, and entering into a relationship with God, with Jesus, because the only thing that is important is to grow in love. You also are involved these days in, I see you involved in all kinds of international gatherings, discussions on justice and peace in Scotland. Um, oh, I, you know, I, you can probably, oh, oh um, I hear references to you being part of a dialogue between Roman Catholic and Orthodox believers. I mean, I, I think that there's a long list of the mm -hmm. kinds of activities and dialogues, global mm -hmm. dialogues mm -hmm. that you are invited to, you participate in. And I'm curious um, what you think you bring out of this experience of L'Arche to these discussions about theology and humanity and great global macro issues such as peace and dialogue? What do you bring that's particular to what you yeah. learn through these communities that have disabled people yeah. at their core? I think we're, we're touching something which is the whole reality of Lash and the mystery. You see, 
When I speak with mums who are Islamic and who have a child with disabilities, when I speak to Hindus or when I speak to mums who've got no relationship, what we, what we see is that as their child grows, we come together. It's a sort of mystery. There was recently in Bangladesh a big pilgrimage uh, organized by brothers of Tezi for um, Muslim people with disabilities, Hindu people with disabilities, um, the tribal religion people, which you have also in Bangladesh, and Christians and so on. And it was a phenomenal moment of rejoicing of all these people with disabilities. Their parents were a different religion. And somewhere they brought everybody together. There was, there was a unity. So the mystery is, if we could come together to hear the cry of the poor and to be present to the poor, we would be unified. But because the danger is we're fighting to have the oil fields or the energy strips or whatever it is, we're all fighting for riches, which has mean I am better than you and I need my... But if we can come together to hear the cry of the poor, they will lead us to unity and to peace. And that is something which appears so far away mm -hmm. from the reality because we're in a world that feels that it's no good unless it has the power and the means for power, which goes from energy to oil and all the rest of the stuff. But if we could get around and be with the weak and the poor and listen to them, they'll bring us together. Another you know, a piece of wisdom I think about Losh is, as you say, it's presence, it's physical presence. I, this is another conversation I have with people all the time in different contexts that the world's pain comes to people in Western cultures often through their television sets or through reading some horrific story in a newspaper or seeing an absolutely heartbreaking picture, you know, like a picture I saw of an Iraqi child crying at a funeral the other week that haunted me for days, and yet there's nothing I can do for that Iraqi child, you know? He's thousands of miles away. I think I'm also aware that uh, it's not only that I, that I can't touch his pain or the sources of it directly, it's that I don't know his, his sources of solace. I don't know what's going to help him get up the next day and somehow start to heal. So I'm just... I'm you throwing see, that out, I wonder, yeah. It, you see, we're in a, an incredible world of technology, the mm -hmm. global world. And, uh, we can be very excited to see what's going on in television and so on. And yet, with television and even with cell phones and internet, we can cut away from relationship, you see. To get an email, you don't see the eyes of the person, you don't see the face, you don't see the smile, you don't see the hands, you don't see the tone of voice. And we have to come down to uh, small is beautiful because small is where we relate. It's funny that global technology may bring us back to small is beautiful. Possibly, <laughs> or take us away from it. Mm -hmm. That's it, you see. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, as you looked at that Iraqi child and you were wounded and wanted to do something, yet you were confronted by your incapacity because that child was not in front of you. Mm -hmm. If that child was in front of you, 
you could have taken the child in your arms. Mm -hmm. and so the, we're, we're going into a world where the imagination, the virtual, the long distance, the things far away, appear as close, but you can't touch them, so they're not close. They're close to the imagination, but they're not close to the body. So I come back to what we were talking about, the body, the incarnation, the bodiliness, that, that bodies. And so let's come back to the reality of the small and the old people in the old people's home and people with disabilities, with their bodies that are broken bodies. And there we can... We can the people touch, who live down the street from us. We can touch them. We mm -hmm. can be with them. And yet it seems so small in a world where wanting to be acclaimed for the big. So we're caught up in the... The big is beautiful, the acclaim, when the difficulty with Lush, which is also our beauty, I say it's our difficulty, it's our beauty is that it's small. Mm -hmm. And it's just very little. And, and it's, it's small, and yet the story of Lush is that from one community in France, you are yeah, now all yeah, over the world. Yeah, and yeah. You're in Africa, you're in yeah, Bangladesh, you yeah, talked about yeah, Calcutta, yeah, some yeah. of the places you've mentioned. But for many assistants who have been brought up in this this world of movement, and so, just to stay in Trolley Braai, you know, where there's rain, and it's every day. <laughs> but it's, it's that littleness. Whereas somewhere uh, we're seeking the big, but then discover that the big takes us away from, from your heart and the person. So this is all part of the paradox of our, of our modern world, mm -hmm. to, to get back onto our feet in the earth, in the mud, and that we're together and we're around the, 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 the table and we can sing and we can dance and we can touch and we can be together in something which is small. Yes, lush has grown, but the reality of every day is sometimes quite painful, mm -hmm. the smallness, in a world where people are being pushed to pretend that they're big. I mean, there was a beautiful girl in my, in my community. She had come for a year. And I saw her as being somebody phenomenal, who if she went on to do special educator and so And the parents were terribly upset because she had to have, a, what for them, a university degree. Right. And I realized that if she did the university degree, she would probably be lost from that reality of physical presence to people. Mm. But uh, you can understand parents, they want... Yes. You know, I think it is, it's deeply countercultural that you say repeatedly, you don't want with Larsh to change the world. That's not the goal. What we can do is what Gandhi says, we can't change the world, but I can change. And if I change, and I seek to be more open to people, and less frightened of relationship, if I begin to see what is beautiful within them, if I recognize also that there's brokenness, because I'm also broken, and that's okay, then there's something that begins to happen about ourselves and acceptance of ourselves and the love of people. But it's so counterculture, but that doesn't matter. What has happened, what I sense for the future of our poor little world with all its ecological difficulties and financial difficulties, that maybe the big thing that's going to happen is that little lights of love will spread over the country. 
little places where people love each other and welcome the poor and the broken, where each other we give to each other their gifts and have these little little places in Egypt and in Libya and in Zimbabwe, and that the world is you know we it will never hit the headlines, <laughs> but we'll be creating these little lamps. Then if there are sufficient number of little, little lamps in each village or each city and parts of the city, well, then the glow will be a little bit greater. What is it you've said? Lars is not meant to be a solution, but a sign. Yes, we can't. You see, I remember once I was speaking to a man in a big city of the United States, I once said, and he said, give me the formula and I'll create 300 lashes, (laughs) you know, in the next two years. I said, well, it doesn't work like that. It's the transmission of a vision. You see, an assistant can come. He thinks the assistant is going to do good for the people with disabilities. Then he begins to discover this assistant is being changed, is being transformed. And then if that person is being transformed, maybe then he can help start another community. But we have to move from the desire for power to the acceptation of fragility and your fragility and discover your weakness and my weakness can be bonded together and we need each other to create community. You might be very different. And so what we're beginning to see that this this can grow just very littlely and it's counterculture, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. We are who we are. And each one of us, if each one of us, we can do a little bit by creating little places of, of love and mutual acceptance. Then, as I say, the little grow, the little glow of light will grow. You're here right now. I'm, I'm sitting with you in outside Washington and you're meeting with, you've been spending the weekend uh, leading a retreat with college students. And I wonder both what, what they teach you, because I sense that you are a person who encounters other human beings as you talk often about standing with humility before humanity and learning. And so what do you learn from them? And, uh, and I'm also curious about at this stage in your life at 79, you mentioned this a minute ago, but what, what are you, what insights are you through what's happening in your body, the aging of your body, the encounter with frailty that we all have at this other end of life? How is that changing you? Two questions. Two questions. What a beauty of young people is their openness, their yearning, their enthusiasm. On the other hand, uh, a feeling of discouragement because the machine is too big, the machine of the world. Kind of what we've been talking about. It's it's too big. So... There's an immense yearning, thirst, but also a fear of commitment. Because in some ways they've been too manipulated and uh, there's a lot of pain amongst the young people. They don't quite know, know what to do with their own sexuality. Sometimes their own family is broken. I mean, it's, it's, it's not an easy world. I mean, I can think of my adolescence some, whatever it is, <laughs> 60 or more years ago, and in a way things were much simpler. Today, with the technology, there's excitement, and yet we're losing the sense of what it means to be human. This brings me back to the second question, okay. <laughs> uh, which is that I'm human. 
That's what you're learning at 79. Yeah, and uh, I have my weaknesses and I have my fragility. I, yeah, physical elements, the heart, and, you know, I have to take things quietly. And intellectually, uh, I get tired much more quickly. I can't. And just to accept that and to accept also because I leave from here and, and tomorrow night I take the plane to Paris and on Saturday, Tuesday lunch, I'll be having lunch in my home and they'll they'll be saying, well, what did you do when you were in the States? And what did they tell you in Washington? What did you, did you see George Bush? You know, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, and Pascal will come up and say, where is United States? And uh, I'll show the map. And I say, where do you think it is? And he puts his finger on somewhere in Zimbabwe, and, you know, but uh, so it's the, uh, just the acceptance of reality. And, uh, you see, the big thing for me is to love reality and not live in the imagination, not live in what could have been or what should have been or what can be. No, it's reality. And somewhere to love reality and then discover that God is present in the reality. That doesn't mean to say that we're just to be passive, to welcome reality, because we also have to know how to react in front of reality. Reality is a, is a, is a beautiful <laughs> reality, but how to just to live that reality and live it with my own body, my own weaknesses, my own need for greater sleep, to get to sleep after lunch and, and all the rest. I mean, this is this is my reality. And I know that in so many years time, would it be five years, I might be in a wheelchair or whatever it is. I mean, I, I am somebody who is moving towards that ultimate reality, which is much closer, which is death. And uh, that reality, my secretary, Barbara, with who was my secretary for 40 years, died uh, last July. And we held hands together for two hours mm. and she just left. And uh, so we are a people also, uh, we're in contact with the reality of, of human beings and in contact with the reality of death and not to be frightened of death. Death is a passage which will be an extraordinary discovery, something that will be so amazing that we can't even imagine it. It's like my little niece who died of AIDS mm -hmm. and she wasn't a believer. She said, what's it going to be like? And I said, well, you're going to fall asleep. And when you wake up, you'll be in such joy, such peace, something that you've never, never lived before. She said, but I'm, I'm not, not a believer. I said, but do you remember when you were in that apartment in Paris and there were some Turkish immigrants who you'd make cakes for them? I've always seen you as somebody kind. Mm. And so your kindness, you will find it'll, it'll be okay. And then the rest we will discover. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be wonderful. This is another something you know. Clearly you know this and all of your philosophy all of your studies can't explain that to you, something you know. Yes, something that we have experienced. You see, if we've experienced somewhere the peace of Jesus, 
the peace of being with other people, the peace of loving people, well then that experience transcends everything, the ideas we might have, because it's that experience where we live trust. And in Greek, the word faith and trust are the same word. And everything is a question of, of trust. Trust in other people, trust in God. Trust in the peace that is in our hearts and the trust that is in the hearts of others. Trust also in those who are struggling to find peace and who've got their angers and their pain. That's okay too. We're in it together. I just want to ask you one more question. Um, I, I'm sure you don't enjoy being reminded that like Mother Teresa, in her lifetime, people said she was a saint, and in Jean Vanier's lifetime, they're saying that you are a saint. And um, I, don't, I don't sense that a lot of your energy has been put into becoming a saint. Um, there's been all this, there was this great shock recently that in Mother Teresa's letters were revealed that she struggled with darkness and depression. And um, I'm personally not shocked by that, but I, I wonder how you responded to that and, and there again number of questions yeah it's a number of questions <laughs> when is. i respond to that yes is i knew mother quite well yes <laughs> she was a fantastic woman i'd have breakfast with her and she'd be telling me about her foundation in yemen and how she was hoping to get to china and what she was doing in africa and so on she might have had difficulties in praying, but never, never, never did she have the slightest doubt in her mission. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think somehow the astonishment over that is, is you know, just connected to what you just said, that you are all about loving reality. And she was facing reality. She may have been a saint by some definition, but that doesn't mean that she was removed from... Yeah. Darkness. In fact, it meant that she was actually touching it and facing it and grappling with it. She had a lot of anguish. You see, and to bring anguish which she had uh, and then to think that it doubted her faith. She never doubted her faith. But in her prayer that she lived anguish, mm -hmm. you know, this is what everybody lives and it's, this is human reality. And I think when Mother Teresa was right, telling these, and I still feel upset because she said that should be destroyed. Mm. And we didn't take seriously what she had said. And I, I feel upset about okay. things that we don't accept what she said. But she was obviously a woman of great anguish. And so when you're a great anguished, your prayer will be... Anguish. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't be surprised. I mean, and don't make a big thing out of it. I mean, this is the reality of everyone. But I think that she was reacting in some way to some people who thought she was having big mystical things and big visions. And so I think what she's saying, no questions of visions. 
I'm just doing what I feel Jesus wants me to do. And she has a mission. And she's telling us now, stop thinking about this anguish. Just get on and start loving people because she is an icon. But we mustn't sit praying in front of the icon. We must listen to what she said, which was, we will be healed by the poor. So let's get down to it. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you. Is there anything you want to say about being compared to her as a living saint? Sanctity. Put it in there. What is important is just to become a little friend of Jesus. Okay. It's your last word. Thank you very much. <laughs>